Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Bastards Red Sox Hot Stove edition of the podcast. No major developments as far as transactions go, but there are plenty of takeaways from this weekend's annual winter weekend, which took place in Springfield, Massachusetts. Another semi-angry mob showed up. I'm not sure it was quite as intense as last year, but uh, tons to take away from that. Micah Storms, Cody Paulson with me tonight. Micah, how are you? I'm doing great. I feel like every time we talk, it gets like worse and worse in terms of like the entertainment of the offseason. Like if Major League Baseball's goal is to like push baseball fans away, they're doing a great job because they're forcing you to go watch the NFL or forcing you to follow the NBA because there's just zero um, entertainment about the MLB offseason. They're just putting you to sleep. How many teams do you think are actually excited as of right now on January 21st going into spring training? How, what would you put the number at? Oh, I don't know. A third of the league, I would say. It's got to be just the Dodgers. I mean, they, they got all the free agents, right? It's, it's only the Dodgers. It's so small. Like maybe the Dodgers, the Braves, obviously, you know, the, the Astros just signed a close, but there's so few teams. Like if you're the Orioles, you just, you just had a, your best season in years. You can't feel great about what's going on right now because you, you have no pitching. Like even they can't be that excited. Like there's I, maybe the Yankees because they've done some things this offseason, but it's just so few teams. And I mean, obviously a lot can change from now until, you know, we go to spring training, but so far right now, they're just, it's just the entertainment aspect is just non-existent. I'm not even sold that the Dodgers are going to win the championship necessarily. You know, it, it's so hard to buy it. And the one smart thing Tom Warner said over the weekend was, the top three payrolls last year missed the playoffs. So, uh, you know, may, maybe the Dodgers finally do, but I'm, I'm not that sold. I, I think, you know, a lot of fan bases are, they're, you know, they're ready for baseball again. I don't doubt that, you know, but having said that, I just yesterday, I thought about this for the first time. W what is the date actually? Oh, wow. Later than I thought, even. So yesterday was January 20th. You're about three weeks away from spring training. I haven't had one day this winter where I've had baseball fever, where I'm like, oh, my God, this winter's dragging. I'm just going through the motions. I mean, I'm going through the day to day hoping something develops, but but I'm not like, oh, my God, I can't wait for that first pitch. It, it's just yeah. And spring training has always done nothing for me. That's like overhyped season. Remember last year when people thought Corey Kluber was hitting 95 on the gun? And then Lou Merloni comes out and says, there's no way he's hitting 95 on the gun. So you'll have stuff like that. You always have your spring training MVP that goes on to have a miserable season. I mean, we saw Pablo Sandoval just crush it one year. Um, Jackie Bradley did it, uh, you know, coming up and... So Bobby Dahlbeck, I think the year before last went off and then how'd that work out? So, 
Yeah, but Cody, anyway, go ahead. What? Try if you you can try to fake it and be happy, but or you can just give us the real thing. I mean, hope does not spring eternal, right? As as the calendar kind of falls off, as we get closer and closer to spring training, I think you guys nailed it. I mean, normally, you know, you're pretty excited about spring training. You know, as long as the regular season is, you realize how long the winter is. Uh, this this time, we're just kind of like, well, another you know, actionless day in the MLB off season, right? Um, I, I still think the Dodgers would be pretty excited because they got some new pieces, some new things to look at. You know, yes, the expectations are going to be monumental, but. Um, you know, we're, we're going to really find out, can you buy a championship, which, you know, winning a championship is the most difficult thing to do. I know that there's a champion crown every year, but so many things have to go right. So many things have to go your way to, to be able to do so. And, um, yeah, I mean, the Red Sox are like, what if we just don't do anything and then see what happens? What if, what if we go the entire opposite direction of building a competitive organization and a competitive ball club and see if maybe one just kind of finds its way back to, to Fenway, but a lot to unpack, I'm sure, and you know we'll get into it. Well, let's get into it. So, this is the most dialogue you know the media has had a chance to have, the fans have had a chance to have with Red Sox brass. It was mostly Kennedy, Warner, and Breslow. But having gone through that whole weekend, and most notably Friday night, Micah. Do you feel better? Like, have they put your mind at ease or is the frustration level, you know, either where it was at or perhaps even higher? Um, I wanted to take some time to really think about this after Friday night. And I, I, I arrived at this idea this afternoon. I am more frustrated um, than I was before because the the comments because Breslow had that uh, interview with uh, Pete Abraham earlier in the week, and he said that he mentioned the top three prospects and said that you know these are the building blocks for the next great Red Sox team. And then you hear um, Sam Kennedy say that the the organization essentially is not going to have the the same payroll as last year. It's going to be lower. To me, that just screams that they've had no plan over the last couple of years because. If you're really building for Teal, Anthony, and uh, Meyer, you would have made moves with the idea that we're we're going towards a common goal. We're going towards something in 2025 or 2026, whatever the year may be. You know, why didn't they trade Nathan Evaldi? Why didn't they trade J.D. Martinez? Why didn't they trade Xander Bogarts or last year Justin Turner or even – um, Chris Martin, when he was the best reliever in baseball, honestly, based on his numbers. Why didn't they make those moves if they were really committed to building the next great Red Sox team in a couple of years? I don't understand. Like They weren't winning the last two years, and they didn't actually build for the future, even though that's now what they said they're going to do is build for the future. It just makes no sense. It, it, to me, this screams that either Craig Breslow finally came into the front office and said, this is the goal and this is the direction we're taking, and now they're taking it. But that just infuriates me over the last two years because you just put Red Sox fans through the ringer. And they could, I mean, how much better could their farm system be? And could they have added a pitcher or two that could actually be in the rotation right now? if they would have traded, you know, those pieces, because they're not just 
you know, role players, those would have been impactful players that other teams could have acquired at the deadline. And it just was squandered. So I just more frustrated now because it, it shows me that they may have a plan now, but they were completely directionless over the last couple of years. Cody. On the flip side, I'm less frustrated because uh, now I know, you know, kind of what to expect, right? Because they come out every year, they say we want to win championships. They, you know, jack up the ticket prices. They jack up the the price of the experience to go and catch a game at Fenway. When on the flip side, what they're actually trying to do is not put something competitive out on the field, right? If we go back and we look at the instant reaction episode to uh, Hein Bloom being fired, I was like, man, I really hope they spend. I really hope they trade all these prospects. I really hope they do something because otherwise what we went through as an organization through the Heimblum era would have been all for nothing. And that's turned out to be exactly that, if not even worse, right? They, you know, I, I got to give Breslow a ton of credit. You know, he's been on the job 120 days, however many days it's been. And he's already like, look, guys, I'm just going to cut it straight with you all. This is what we're doing. This is what I'm working with within the front office. This is where we're going to be. And you know what? At least we know what the expectations are, right? You know, we're not going to have to try to do the mental gymnastics of, well, you know, if Corey Kluber really was throwing 95, maybe he can get a couple of good wins or if Paxton comes back or, you know, maybe Hauk stays healthy or, you know, we put Whitlock in the bullpen, we can get to 90 wins and maybe squeak into the playoffs, do a wild card just to be let down year after year after year. Now we know, hey, this year, if you're free on a Wednesday night, flip on the game, you know, see us getting pummeled. It'll be what it'll be. And just know that, the Red Sox organization, as much as they claim it to be a cornerstone of the Fenway Sports Group, as much as they claim it to be a priority of their business model, it isn't. It's a profitable fan base. John Henry's not from Boston. I believe Sam Kennedy is, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. I would love for one of you guys to, to fact check me there, but he is. Right. You know, and perhaps we need to start looking looking at ownership, right? One of the the marquee things we always talk about when we talk about free agents or players on the Red Sox is can they handle the Red Sox media? Can they handle the Red Sox pressure? You know, the the petri dish or you know the terror dome, whatever you want to call it, of of playing pressure cooker of playing in Boston. It's clear that this ownership group can't do it right. Like yes, they've won in the past. Yes, they've put together championship level um, teams, but. They skirt the media. They drop out these weird quotes, seemingly always around the same time of year, and then they don't show up. They don't back it up. And at this point in time, I'm in the firm belief that they are disinterested in putting together a championship baseball roster until I see it before my eyes. You know, if you want to invest in the young players, that's fine. Our farm system is getting better, yes, but by all metrics, our development isn't doing very well. So as much as you're hoping that these prospects do well, then invest in the training system. Invest in what's going to help these players develop because we haven't seen you do that investment either. So I don't know where you expect these players to make these leaps and bounds to be able to become the cornerstone of these franchises unless you think the scouting is just so good that they're just so naturally talented that they're going to be able to figure it out on their own. I still don't think they have a plan. There's no point at any – or sorry, there hasn't been a point at any single point in time – where I've been like, okay, I can follow the footsteps. I know what they're doing, right? At least with the Bloom era, we're like, okay, we're not going to spend long. And we're not going to spend big, right? We don't want to be committed to these long contracts. We're going to know 
year over year financial flexibility, draft well, develop, and eventually when we get back under the luxury tax, we're going to make our moves, we're going to make our plays, and many believe that that was going to be this offseason, they got rid of him. But it was at least something that you were like, hey, if I buy into this pain, there is a potential that it pays off. We know what we're doing. We at least have a roadmap or a plan that we can say, we're going to take our lumps, we're going to take our bruises, it's going to be bad, but there is a light at the end of the proverbial tunnel. They could say 2024. They could say 2025. They also said full throttle and then spent a million dollars, right, until the Giolito thing. So, you know, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. There's no whim of a plan except for saying, hey, prospects, guys who haven't done anything above AAA yet, pressure's on. You're the future. Figure it out. And to me, I think that's really unfair. I became more and more frustrated uh, the more they opened their mouth. This transparency that we finally sort of got only happened after they literally whiffed on the entire market this winter. That's when they're like, okay, we better fess up. We screwed up. So now let's lower the expectations to at least try to save face so our incompetence isn't the thing that's the most apparent. That frustrates me. The other thing you kept hearing Kennedy say, uh, especially, is we're waiting for this young core, okay? This young core is all bats. They're, They're all position players. There's no young core of pitching, so you probably ought to sign some pitching. (laughs) It's just, it's... It's insanely frustrating. And here's another thing, too. You can you can sell off a bunch of guys. You can sign that Jordan Montgomery type guy and still trade Kenley Jansen. Even Chris Martin at the deadline. You can trade Nick Pavetta. Uh, Tyler O'Neill is making almost $6 million. You can trade him. You can get that payroll down later on. I don't even know if they're smart enough to think that way at this point. I don't think they're even capable of thinking that far ahead. There's not much outside the box thinking going on. You can't look at this Red Sox front office and from an IQ standpoint and compare them to all the best teams out there. You just can't do it. Here's another thing I'm frustrated with. And I become more convinced of this by the day. This whole weekend was all about Sam Kennedy and not about Craig Breslow. It was all Kennedy doing the talking, talking about the payroll will be lower. This is why we're not being aggressive, blah, blah, blah. And when you look at there, there's not, there's no difference between Heim and Breslow in terms of direction of the major league club. The The hallmark is still no starting pitching. That's, that's super apparent. And they've already said, they've already given all the guys on the roster. They said Bayo is going to start uh, Pavetta. No, actually Pavetta's uh, one of the ones that's going to compete for that fifth spot. So is Hauk. So is Whitlock. I'm drawing blanks here, but Giolito, Bayo definitely have spots. And uh, I think, go ahead. 
I th- I think Pavetta was one of the four oh, with um yeah, Crawford as well. And then I think it was Winkowski, Whitlock, and Hauk who were gonna compete okay. for that fifth spot. That makes sense. All right. So this is the same, you know, entire rotation outside of Giolito of fours and fives that are expected to overperform and, and do stuff that they've never done for a full season before. Yeah, all of these guys are gonna make that leap this year. You can't you can't sell me on that. So what I'm getting at here with Kennedy is by firing Heim Bloom, I think part of the motivation behind that is he's going to have a lot more inf- influence now. And I've said this on recent shows, but he's the most vocal guy, you know, in the Red Sox organization right now. And it just seems like Breslow is a puppet. He's a puppet. And I I went through the whole list of 10 executives last episode. Who wanted this job? Nobody. Nobody. They who wanted to be a small market GM in Boston? Nobody. Part of the lore about landing that job is, man, you're going to really go for it. You're going to have tons of resources to to build this next dynasty dynasty in Boston and and it didn't happen and and oh by the way not not only are you you're going to have smaller market constraints now you have to keep you have to keep Brian O'Halloran you have to keep Eddie Romero and you have to keep Alex Cora and that's another thing Kennedy said this weekend he was asked you know well who who's Cora's future up to and he goes oh that's that's Breslow's decision that's not my decision that's Breslow's yet it was Kennedy a month before Breslow even got hired that said oh Cora's staying this year you know so I'm I'm not I don't have any more confidence uh going into you know coming out of the weekend than I did going into it, it it's just an incompetent group of of executives that just don't really have a feel for what's going on we we talked about when they were in the middle of their their search for a new president of baseball ops you know we were kind of like would it be best if they cleaned house or you know would you want some familiarity with the organization after this weekend and seeing what has been going on I really wish they would have cleaned house. I, I really wish, like, I, I think Breslow is a very intelligent guy. Um, I, I really think the the Chris Sale deal, like, that has his hands all over it. And there's no way Sam Kennedy is orchestrating that deal. But I just don't want to hear the same crap that we've been hearing over the last couple of years. It's just, you know, to call Fenway Park. It's not all about a winning product on the field. That's not necessarily the only reason people come to the ballpark. That's an embarrassing statement. Like, yeah, you want to have the museum feel, but it should be because there's a winning product on the field and it's a it's a history of winning. This is a they I just can't see them continuing to go down this road. And like you said, Terry, all they had to do was sign Sonny Gray to a three year deal. And add a starter that is, you know, a front of the rotation arm for a next year or two. You didn't have to make a crazy commitment. We went through all those garbage years 
for financial flexibility, we finally have it and it doesn't mean anything. Well, what the hell was the reason to go through all that for financial flexibility when now you have it and they still want financial flexibility? Like how much financial flexibility do you want? After this year, it's Devers and Trevor Story pretty much that are locked up. That is like, that is unbelievable financial flexibility. Why not add, you can add short term. I'm not asking for Cody Bellinger on an eight-year deal or something crazy like that. Like two, three, four-year deals do not kill financial flexibility. That doesn't kill it. I don't understand why they are so set on 225. Like what is that number? Like being lower than that. I don't understand that. The luxury tax goes up, players' salaries go up, and they want to lower spending. That just that makes no sense if you're trying to compete in 2024. I, I just this is not the organization that I've grown accustomed to watching over the last almost probably what two decades or so. I just I don't recognize them. Real quick, Cody, before you go on, so. When you talk about the museum aspect of going to Fenway, Micah, Sam Kennedy had a quote. He said, we think our record is probably the most important thing, but there are other things that make going to Fenway a special place. Now, there's a bunch of takeaways you can take from that quote. The first one is, you know, when they say our record is the most important thing. That kind of sounds like they're cashing in on their four championships and they're just kind of, you know, they're they're just winning isn't really or I should say, you know, winning a championship isn't exactly, you know, a, a high priority at this point. It's it's, you know, appearing to be competitive and getting people in that that seems to be all they care about. They could be looking at a team like trying to think of a good example here. Some teams just, they have, they don't have tons of problems with attendance, but they're making money. And I think that's what the, the Red Sox, you know, are, are, are kind of looking at it. You know, a championship would be cool, but it's not, it's not critical. And, when you when you say a quote like that, that Fenway is a special place to go, you're kind of saying, well, we think some of our fans are kind of stupid and they're just going to they're just going to, you know, boost our revenue anyway. But Cody, I mean, as long as Fenway remains profitable, they're going to be emboldened to continue this pattern of behavior. Right. As long as they continue to run the Red Sox like a business versus an organization that is focused on winning. Sure, they'll pull it out the quotes that say we're focused on championships. This is the Boston Red Sox. You know, this is a, a story franchise that has a history of winning and we want to continue that and continue to chase championships. But actions speak louder than words. And even their words aren't really that loud at this point, right? Because like you said, Terry, it's not easy. I mean, it's not very difficult to read between the lines to see the true meaning of what they're saying, right? You know, they're saying the first things first. We want to go full throttle, right? We want uh, to make sure that winning is the most important thing. But as long as Fenway is, you know, still an important draw or a place to go, it seems like they're content. And it, in a in a sport that's so competitive, right, where so few teams are really battling for championships 
you are one of the few that are invited to the table, right? It's a similar thing in college football. Sure, there's 128 teams in the, you know, the FBS, but really only about 15 teams can logically play for a national championship. And that list, I think, is getting shorter by the day as we have more outside influence. You don't have that in baseball. If you have the best record, you're invited to the postseason. If you do well in the postseason, you have the opportunity to play for a championship. It The equation isn't difficult, right? And, you know, how do you get to more wins? You get good players. Um, it is one of the more straightforward models to success, I think, in, in all sports. And the refusal to do so, the continued importance on the experience and the amount of revenue that is being generated by the organization um, is, I think, just a slap in the face to all the fans. So Breslow's first year with the Red Sox as a player was 2012. That was the Bobby Valentine year. He had a front row seat to a lot of history starting with that year because you had all the controversies with Valentine. But then in late August, back when they had the non-waiver deadline, or excuse me, the waiver deadline rather, there was that massive salary dump where Beckett, Crawford, Gonzalez, Nick Punto all went to the Dodgers. And he was there for that. And then he was there for the winter when Ben Sherrington essentially executed the strategy that Bloom probably should have a year or two ago and that Breslow definitely should this year. He went out and he signed a bunch of short-term deals. Sherrington did. Mike Napoli for three years. $13 million, by the way. Who are we even trying to sign for that 10 years later, 12 years later? Who, who are we giving out $13 million contracts to to try to fill these gaps, whether they're position players or, or starting pitchers? But you get Napoli, Victorino, Gomes, Koji Uihara, all proven guys. No, no red flags on any of them, really. You, you knew Mike Napoli was probably going to give you a solid year. Shane Victorino was slightly on the downside, but there was no reason to, to not believe he wouldn't be you know productive. For, for what he was being paid. And then Johnny Gomes is my favorite pinch hitter of all time off the bench. That dude hit so many clutch hits off the bench that year. And none of those were consequential. There were no severe consequences with any of those deals. And those guys were signed so that, you know, Bogart's... Mookie Betts, Jackie Bradley, you were waiting for those guys to come up. And that's basically what happened. Bogarts came up later that year. I don't know if they really foresaw that, but he was playing third base in the World Series that year. And the the thing that that's so frustrating, and I wish ownership could could see it in this light, but if they were running this team back then like they are today, if they were putting constraints on Ben Sherrington like they are with Breslow, you don't win a championship in 2013. You win one less championship because of all that. But but Ben Sherrington had the you know a little bit of flexibility to make those mid-market signings and 
Breslow had a front row seat to that. He had a front row seat. And now here he is, supposedly the boss, and he doesn't seem to have the same level of flexibility. That's why I think Sam Kennedy is, he could be the de facto chief baseball officer. I, I really believe that. And the scary thing is, and I've pointed this out recently, he's a part owner of the team. So he's not going anywhere for a while. And this is a very stubborn ownership group that doesn't like to admit they're wrong. So I don't know. I mean, when does the when does he check himself and say, you know what? I, I shouldn't be messing with the operations here. And, and get out because I have a feeling it could be a long time before that happens. Sam Kennedy is not a baseball guy. And you, you're getting, you're just getting so many, it, it seems like they're, they're pivoting. They're so indecisive right now. On one hand, you can say it took them five years to admit they're in a rebuild. I don't think they necessarily were. I think they really thought that 2022 roster when they were over the luxury tax, I really think they thought that was going to be competitive and relevant in the month of October. And it wasn't, but you know, I don't think they would have spent all that money that year if they were thinking it was a rebuild mentality. I just think they, they changed their minds from year to year and they don't have a smart baseball guy in there. And you look at Dave Dombrowski, that guy, he was the guy wielding the sword. Yeah, they they might have, on various years, they might have said, okay, you're not exceeding this. You're not going over the luxury tax. But that was it. What he did other than that was his decision and his alone. He decided how he was going to spend. And I don't, I'm not sold that Breslow is that guy. I'm really not. So I think I've had to eat some crow on my takes on Dombrowski. Um, as as much as I think a lot of Bloom supporters have taken a little bit of a victory lap with all of these quotes from, from ownership, I think they also need to take uh, an equal helping of, of crow on how they spoke about Dombrowski, right? I always said that he was, you know, overly aggressive, um, you know, put us in position that we had to kind of behave like we did when we did have uh, Bloom because we were kind of cash-strapped and locked into some players that maybe we shouldn't have been because of, of Dombrowski's movements. But at the same time, Dombrowski was making moves. He was putting a competitive uh, product out on the field. And for that, I apologize, David Dombrowski. Uh, please accept this as my formal apology. Um, but we're we're getting kind of close to Cowboys territory, Tara. And, uh, you know, I don't mean this to be any any sort of insult or offense but jerry jones has his hands in the pot way too much for the cowboys for for my opinion and they're always a competitive team they spend large he talks a lot but you know when it comes down to it they haven't been able to get over the hump in 30 plus years and i think the longer that this uh you know ownership organization kind of gets into the nitty-gritty the more difficult it's going to be for you know this team to win championships um, so those were kind of my two takeaways. One, apology to Dombrowski. Two, I really hope we don't become the Cowboys of, of the MLB. You know, it, it's interesting because you brought up Dombrowski and like I appreciated his just 
cockiness in terms of I'm doing this, do it. And I, I would like to combine kind of the financial flexibility with the Dombrowski model. Like you can do both where you continue to keep financial flexibility, but you're aggressive to go get the players you want. Um, you know, Terry, you talked about the three-year deals back in 2013. Well, how about these three-year deals that were signed this offseason? Would this not make the Red Sox a competitor this year? Sonny Gray, 3-75. and 75. Lourdes Gurriel, 3-42. and 42. Seth Lugo, 3-45. and 45. If you add those three three-year contracts, tell me the Boston Red Sox don't go from a seller dweller to at least a favorite to get a wild card spot. And you still have financial flexibility moving forward. You have still Raphael Devers and Trevor Story in three years, and that's it. You would still have the financial flexibility that you want, and you could have probably traded Kenley Jansen and been under the luxury tax or just over, and if it didn't go well, trade off in the in at the deadline and you know get underneath. But that was possible. But you didn't have the the direction and you didn't have the plan immediately. You said, well, we're going for Yamamoto, Yamamoto, Yamamoto. And you were nowhere in the ballpark because they don't have a read on the actual market. And the players are out there to build a winning team, but they're not willing to just be aggressive. And we're not, like I said, you don't have to sign the eight, nine-year deals. Three-year deals are possible. Those three players would drastically change the outlook of the 2024 Red Sox. Look at some of the, you know, perennial playoff teams that are almost always in it. You know, you've got the Dodgers, you got the Braves, you got the Blue Jays in in the last few years. Um, Just going through some of them, the Philadelphia Phillies, the Chicago Cubs, the Padres, you very rarely hear about those teams' owners getting involved. It's mostly it's mostly just the 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 general manager or, or president of baseball ops. Those are the people you're hearing from. If you hear from the Phillies owner, he's saying we're gonna spend, we're going after this. That that's when you hear about the Phillies owner. Uh, and same with the Padres is same with the Cardinals. I, I don't even know who owns the Cardinals, you know, like and they're not like this massive market team, but but they're they're always in in contention. The, the Nationals, too, you know, throughout throughout their tenure, they do have the richest owners. But Mike Rizzo is is very much the guy, you know, kind of calling the shots there. And. Look at these teams where you do hear from the owners, uh, the, the Anaheim Angels, all the time. You know, you, you hear about them, uh, the Mets. So it's like it's only the dumpster fire teams where owners are meddling with the day to day signing per signing every single transaction meddling with that. It's never a good thing. The only person that's ever successfully pulled that off is George Steinbrenner. And it was never about being conservative at any point with him anyway. So it's it's just not good. 
the Astros, Jim Crane, you know, only in the last couple of years has started meddling with it. I, you know, he rejected, they wanted, uh, was it Contreras, the catcher? They ended up getting Vasquez, but Crane wouldn't let them trade either Javier or Urquidy. One of those pitchers was tentatively in a deal and then Crane stepped in and nixed it, you know, so we'll see what happens with the Astros, but there's there's nothing good about about that and i hope we get back to the days of you know having a a trusted executive make all the decisions you know if he's got a budget so be it so be it but he's going to make all the decisions that you know go into meeting whatever those requirements are you know if he's got 50 million to spend he's going to decide whether it's an outfielder and a starting pitcher or, you know, a starting pitcher and a couple relievers. I, I don't know, but it's, it's just frustrating to sit there and, and watch him mess it up. It's kind of like, you know, if, if there's a movie scene that's so perfect here that, that could, that could basically sum up what's going on in Boston. It's, it's in goodwill hunting when he's meeting with, I forget the professor's name, the one that he was working with on the math. And Matt Damon's character says, uh, here it is, you know, it's it's all correct. And the, the professor looks at it and he goes, well, are you sure you didn't consider this? He goes, it's correct. It's correct. And they get into it and Matt Damon's character says, you know, this is easy for me. This is easy for me, and it's frustrating to sit here and watch you F it up. And then he lights it on fire and walks out. You know, so that's what's going on. And I don't know. And then is, is winning this year a good thing? Is this team exceeding expectations a good thing? It's good for business at Fenway, but are we going to get the the front office and ownership getting a false sense of validation that this is the correct formula here. And then we follow it up with a couple more last place finishes. Like, I don't even know if it's appropriate to root for this (laughs) as sacrilegious as that is. I don't know if it's going to be as much of a, a false sense of security as say 2021 was, if this team does win, because Ownership in of itself has already kind of said, hey, this team is what it's going to be. We're already focused on 2025, right? Like they're already looking towards the next iterations of this team. So this team or the the 2024 calendar year team doing well, I don't think changes kind of what they've got circled on their timeline. I think they're focused on the prospects. They're focused on uh, the young guys coming up and contributing, you know, would there be holdovers from this team? Maybe, but I don't think it's going to embolden them to say, Hey, you know, all those one year, $13 million deals that we were offering Yamamoto was definitely the way to go. Um, we can continue to draft and wait. And if, if the policy is to draft and wait, well then potentially they just let the best drafter in, in the league leave. So I don't know what the plan was there at that. It's an interesting question because it, I guess it would depend on how they succeed. 
Because if Tanner Houck takes a massive step forward or Cutter Crawford, Brian Bayo, like if the young pitchers that they have that they're kind of banking on, if they were to really take a step forward, I would say it's a massive win because you could probably say, well, we can count on at least one or two of them to be consistent moving forward based on how they perform. But if they somehow are in it and the pitching is still up and down, but the offense is really good. Like I, I do think we're kind of in the same spot where we don't have pitching. Pitching's not really on the way. And you're kind of waiting for what are we going to do? Like we'll be in the same spot as we were this off season. Um, but while you guys were talking, it kind of made me think, say they really overperform expectations in the first half of the year, based on what ownership has said in terms of building with Teal, Anthony, and Meyer, they basically said they will not buy at the deadline again. Like, we're going to have a quiet deadline if they are in the mix because they're not going to trade their top prospects. That's how they're building for the future, and that's the plan. So they basically played their cards that if somehow this team overperforms, it doesn't matter. We're going to be selling at the deadline or we won't do anything like we did the last two two deadlines. And that's kind of – if you're a player on the Red Sox, I mean, you basically know the roster you go into spring training with is the roster you're going to have no matter how well you play this season. For me, it, it's a massive win if Casas is an MVP candidate and is – around 35 to 40 home runs. And if either Duran or Abreu are studs for most of the year, and if you get those two cranking, you know, it, it generates buzz because it's new. It's it's new and exciting. We're, we're kind of there essentially with Casas, but I think we still need another season of validation to say, okay, he is the guy and, you know, I would still extend him tomorrow to, a, you know, a long-term deal. But so you get those two going and then Bayo, you know, perhaps has a, you know, maybe a, a top 10 Cy Young type year and Giolito is, is good. Then maybe, Maybe some buzz starts, and then maybe suddenly next year Boston's an appealing destination. That's That has to be what comes out of this season. We need to be appealing next season. If it's similar to 2021 where no one's really crushing it, you know, and your rotation's just barely hanging on, I... I I don't know that that's that's a win, you know. I, it's it's frustrating. I, I don't know how I'm gonna have confidence right now in the front office. I, I'm I just you just saw me try to talk myself into it, but I, I can't even buy my own, you know, hypothetical. It's it's just frustrating. Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't. Didn't it come out early in the offseason we were going to improve this team via the trade market and we weren't really uh, actively seeking free agents? Wasn't that the initial prognosis of how we were going to improve this team? Yes, and it seemed that way towards the end of the winter meetings. 
they see right but then if we were going to hold these prospects and they were going to be the cornerstone of our franchise moving forward so which is it then? true absolutely yeah i see where you're going with that now yeah and and i was going to mention to micah's take but i decided not to because inevitably we're going to talk about it again all your prospects are lefties so it's not even realistic that you keep them all unless you're going to trade casas or devers or Devers, you know, I thought about this earlier. Red Sox ownership is probably praying that Devers demands a trade at some point because he's frustrated with Boston. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, my God, you know, if he's open to it and it's not this massive controversy. Yeah, let's let's get that money off our books. Look at his whole career. He's. He's been in the postseason three times. One of them was the year he was called up. So I don't I don't even know if that counts. But 2018, 2021, that's it. That's all Devers has had in the postseason. His almost his whole career, you know, has has been on a losing team. Yeah, and the frustrating part is if they're really building for probably 2026. 2027 like Devers is going to be 29 30 years old at that point like you've kind of wasted his prime years over the last at that point it'll be like four or five years where they probably won't be in the playoffs like you're wasting his prime years then what was the point of extending him but the reality is there was no plan at that point that was just we have no choice but to do this because if we don't we're going to get crushed by the Boston media for not signing him since we let all the other guys go. Like there, that, that was the only way you can explain it. And they, if they, you got them behind closed doors, they'd say the same thing. There's no doubt about it because they haven't had a plan over the last four years. It's cut payroll and let's see what, where we are. And now they're just shifting to, we're building for the future because if they really were, like I said before, if they were really doing that, the last two trade deadlines would have been drastically different. There's no doubt about it. I agree with that. And I've said on recent shows, the Red Sox ownership was forced to do it. They couldn't have Mookie Betts 2.0. There's, you know, they were still, as Cody says, talking out both sides of their mouth on what really happened with Mookie Betts. So how can they, how are they going to survive, you know, a situation with Devers where they just let him go for no reason. They they couldn't do it. So they had to. And, and the thing with Devers is like, obviously you're project. I'd be, I'm projecting a ton here, but like if he stays healthy, he probably has a shot at 500 home runs. Like he's going to be approaching 200 this year and he's 27 years old. If he continues to hit 35 to 40 a year, he's going to be at least at 350, 400. And if you get up to that number, who knows what happens? Like, Devers is a chance to be like a Hall of Fame type talent. I know I'm, I'm really putting a lot on him, but like they signed him to be a superstar for this organization for a long time. That's what that contract says. And he has proven to be that type of player so far in his Boston days. And to kind of waste that, 
I just, it's so frustrating. Like the fact that they had Mookie Betts, who is a Hall of Famer moving, like he, you can put him in the Hall of Fame right now. Um, if he never played another game, he'd be in. And you were able to produce another player who is going to be like, he's going to be one of the all time great Red Sox if he stays healthy. I it just, it's so frustrating to see the fact that they had these core players in place. And we saw the success right in the beginning in 2018. And then after that, there just, there really wasn't anything because of how they managed the team moving forward. It's just, it's really frustrating. I don't know what else we can say. Um, I, I think, I think Red Sox ownership knows we're not buying it. I don't think they came out of the weekend feeling good either. They sat through the booze. That was a noticeably smaller crowd. And I just feel like they they have no friends. They they really have no friends. <laughs> Mike is laughing his ass off right now, but um, the media isn't backing them. Players, agents like are laughing at them. Like I'm not sending my player to your clown show. You know, I, I said in the last show, the Red Sox don't have the luxury of being an undesirable destination and expecting, you know, a random free agent player to take their offer, which is probably the second or third best offer that that free agent has. So they're they're the Red Sox. Their agents are just probably laughing at them at this point. Like you guys don't even know how to do it. So, you know, ex ex players on the team are laughing at the Red Sox. I think the current core of players is is frustrated with ownership to some degree. You know, they never get any help at the deadline, as Micah was kind of pointing out. Red Sox ownership has no friends right now. They're the laughing stock. You know, they got confronted by it in Springfield. None of the media, I don't see any of the media saying, and, and by media, I'm talking about the local guys, Pete Abraham, Chris Cotillo, Sean McAdam, all those guys. I don't, none of those guys came out of Springfield saying, okay, now it makes sense. That's not what's being said. So it's a clown show and... It's going to continue to be that way. Um, it did come up across my uh, Twitter feed over the weekend. Papelbon, who you had on here, um, he's been kind of critical of the team, but he it, it did come across that he said he believes the team has an ace up their sleeve. Do you buy that at all? Because I found it in interesting that he said it. Because, you know, if – if Alex Cora would have said it or, you know, Craig Breslow or Sam Kennedy would have said that, I would have just completely dismissed it. But when Papelbon said it, I was kind of like, huh, I wonder if he, like, knows something that, like, they they really are really searching in trade markets. Um, I, he could probably, he's probably the only guy that I would really think twice about a comment like that. Cody? 
I think Papelbon is treading on thin ice with the lane that he's taking uh, with Red Sox media. Um, you know, he kind of is doing that. Let's be the voice of the people. Let's be critical of the front office and, and, and ownership. And let's kind of press them, put the screws to them. But at the same time, he's also like, I'm a winner. I was born to be a champion. I don't understand these guys with loser mentalities. Like, it's it's a really weird dynamic, the personality that he's trying to be in the media. Maybe it's, you know, that he's recently kind of gotten to going and he's trying to find his footing. Um, I honestly think that he probably just thinks that it's Bayo. Or like the ace up their sleeve is somebody that they're just going to, you know, develop on the rotation or hope turns into an ace, right? Like how figures it out or they turn Whitlock into a starter and he's up to 222 and he's a solid 222 or whatever, you know, best shape of his life kind of comments where we always get after somebody has some significant injury, right? I'm in the best shape of my life. It's like, dude, you're in year six of your career. Like we'll believe it when we see it. Um, so until I see the actions, I'm not going to believe anything at this point. And it, this kills me because you know, coming on this podcast, being a part of this team, I love chatting socks with you guys. I was the resident optimist of the group. I, you know, I don't think that was very difficult to suss out. I was the one that was like kind of pumping up the team. Oh, you know, if this goes this way or, if, you know, we get kind of these things the right way, you know, we could do this. And I, I don't see it right now. And I, I want to believe that this team ha- has a plan and has an agenda to, to be, com- be competitive. Um, if they pull a magic trick, a Burt Wonderstone, and find an ace, I'll be the first to say I was wrong, and I'm shocked, and I am begging to be wrong. I mean, if we want to throw theories out there, uh, another thing is th- they could just be banking on Andrew Bailey, you know, helping a couple of these guys get over the hump. And I'm kind of hoping for that, too. But uh, an interesting thing came out today. I think it was Chris Smith. Christopher Smith of um, Mass Live published an article about Cooper Criswell with him revealing that the Red Sox told him, hey, get yourself stretched out because, you know, we might use you as a starter. (laughs) So with that, you're like, oh, okay." So, you know, for all the one percenters out there that think the, you know, the Jordan Montgomery thing might still be a possibility (laughs) well you know go read that article about cooper Criswell. so i i don't know i i think maybe andrew bailey could be the ace in the hole as far as that goes so what you're saying is cooper Criswell is really the ace up the red sox (laughs) sleeve that nobody knows maybe the the guy that tampa didn't think was worth one million dollars as a reliever the red sox are like oh we see you as a starter though you know cody it's funny you said you're the optimist and i i considered myself an optimist but now a lot of people are telling me that i'm a pessimist because i work with terry so terry (laughs) you have made me a pessimist so I I I, I, think, I think I'm going to retire because I don't want to be a pessimist anymore, and I you're rubbing off on me. That's what everyone always tells me. I think I've emboldened you. You know, I, I'm the guy in the room that says what everyone else is thinking. You know, for the most part. You know, and I I get in trouble for that. But you know, I, I, I if anything, I've I've emboldened you. One other thing about Papelbon, I know Micah, you saw it because I think it was your post that that kind of made me aware of it, but 
he was bashing Anthony Rendon earlier. Um, Rendon said on a podcast that MLB seasons are too long and coming from him, a guy who's averaged only 50 games a season since he signed that massive seven-year, $235 million deal. Papelbon kind of destroyed him for that because he was a teammate of his for part of a season, 2016. I think that ended up being Papelbon's last season. It was. Uh, He was traded from the Phillies to the Nationals, and then he had that incident with Harper where they had the, you know, the dust up in the, in the dugout. So, so what's interesting here though, is Papelbon is really going after people and he's being off the cuff. And I'm wondering how that's going to work with the Red Sox. Like, is he gonna, he was critical towards bloom. If you listen to the podcast episode we had, and he had some tweets around the time of the trade deadline, really blaming bloom for a lot of the issues. And so that, that card's, you know, been played. He can't play that again. So who's he going to blame it on? And I'm just waiting for the one thing that rubs Red Sox ownership the wrong way. Maybe it's bye-bye Papelbon. But that's refreshing, though. I, I like seeing Papelbon be be candid like that. And the other hilarious thing, especially with the Rendon thing, Papelbon was good his whole career. You can't really look back on his career and say, yeah, but you sucked for, you know, while you were with this team or with that team. He really only tailed off at the very end of his career. He was always one of the best, you know, closers out there. Most of his career coincided with, you know, Mariano Rivera. So he he was never the premier guy, but, and and Craig Kimbrell was really good uh, for part of Papelbon's career as well. But Papelbon's a guy who can really dish it out and you can't really call him a hypocrite because he was that good. So do you do you have Papelbon's numbers up in front of you? I just yeah. you're looking at a screen. Well, yep. how, what was his um, final save number? His final save number was three hundred and sixty eight. Okay, I didn't know if he was in the like four hundred or mid fours, because then you I feel like you have a, a case for like a Hall of Fame player but i don't think he's quite at that level he fell right off the ballot right away so that kind of surprised me because i i thought you know with that world series win and i mean he was an all-star six times i i didn't know if he would get in or not but i thought he would be a guy that would hang around for a little while on the ballot you got for the casuals out there you you have to get what 10 percent of the vote on your first year something like that and then if you don't, you're off. You don't stick around. So that we must be getting close to them revealing who who got in, right? Okay. It's like, please don't tell me I missed it. But um, yeah, so we'll see on that. But but and th- and then the other thing I meant to say about Papelbon is it I think it was hard for him to be too he couldn't really be critical of ownership or Breslow or anything. They put him in that spot because they're like He's wildly popular, so he's gonna he's gonna deflect a lot of the anger and and make it a more entertaining situation. That's why Papelbon was put in that spot, and I don't think the crowd, like I said in the open, was as hostile as last year. Like Bloom was screaming at them back, like defiantly, like screaming at them and justifying everything. And, you know, you didn't get that type of back and forth this year. 
I heard a video, which I was kind of bummed at, but I, Breslow was talking and someone screamed out Bloom 2.0. Um, and like, I got to be honest, like for Breslow, I do kind of feel for the guy because I really believe based on when he took the job and the terminology he used, I think there was a, a dramatic shift in approach some point this offseason, whether it was they knew they weren't going to get Yamamoto. Like, I do believe there was a shift. I don't think he would talk like he did in his introductory press conference and then, you know, intentionally 60 days later go back on what he said and say, we're really building on these three prospects and it's about 2025 and beyond. Like, I just, I think something changed and. I don't think he it deserves that he's the fall guy. Like I, I think he is the least guy to blame that was on the stage or is in the front office. I, I, I do feel for him. I, I am not angry whatsoever at Craig Breslow because if there's anything, he's working with handcuffs because he can only do so much. I think he's going to be really creative. I think he's shown that this offseason so far. Um, but again, you can only do so much with the, the spending limitations that he's been given. Cody. I mean, he's trying to, you know, make lemonade out of like rotten crab apples. Like, I, I don't, I don't really know like what else to say besides what Micah has said, right? Like if you're mad at Breslow, wake up. Like, it's not the guy's fault. He's been here a too short of a time to really do anything and B, everything that we've heard from ownership has been shed money, shed payroll. You can't spend it. So what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to find um, a path to success when you can't trade your prospects because those are the cornerstones for the franchise? So, like, those are the three constraints, right? You can either spend the money that you have with a luxury tax. Can't do that. Trade your <laughs> prospect capital to go and get good players. Can't do that either. So what are you supposed to do, Right these reclamation projects that we've been doing year over year over year, which now I think makes a lot more sense as to why we keep getting these one year, $7 million deals or guys that can't, you know, cut it elsewhere are coming to Boston because that's what we're left with. Right. And, you know, you got to have 26 players on the roster to field a team. And they're like, well, I guess we'll have to pay somebody. And so these are the players that are coming through the door. And uh, at this point in time, until we see a change in, I guess, behavior uh, of the team. I'm not going to be mad at any general manager that is in this position. Cause like Mike, I said, they're in handcuffs. There's, there's no way that you're supposed to be able to field a successful team, a competitive team in the AL East of all divisions. When you have these limitations. I mean, that's perfect. I mean, he can't trade for anybody. Apparently can't sign anybody. <laughs> you know, So what, what, what's his job again? You know, I, I don't, I don't know. And he did have a comment like and it, it was essentially a concession to me that they weren't going to they weren't going after, you know, a Montgomery type guy. And he he was essentially saying, well, to that 2024 isn't critical in terms of the big picture. You know, why? Why do it to do it just for 2024? And then he and then they they were asked about. Cora's extension and he goes oh 2024 is too critical to be talking about Alex Cora's extension so it's not critical enough in terms of adding people but it's too critical to to you know to discuss bringing back Cora it's just 
constant pivoting and mixed mixed signals go ahead micah i just have one more point i know we're probably going on almost an hour here but I, i really think when you're talking about developing for the future it's really just an it's an oversight to just dismiss signing real big league players and saying well we'll just let the the young kids figure it out because the, the young players can learn a lot from veteran players. You sign Jordan Montgomery, even if it's a three or four year deal, like they seem very stuck on, I won't go no more than three years, but what kind of leadership would Montgomery be able to provide to that rotation to help guys like Bayo Crawford, Hauk, Whitlock, those guys who haven't yet cracked the code of being a a big time starting pitcher, you know, you can't just dismiss that he could come in and really help transform a rotation. Or even if you want to sign a catcher, like they brought back Reese McGuire, who is essentially just a four A player. He's the definition of it. Like he's just not a big league catcher. You could have brought in a even if you wanted to bring in a Gary Sanchez, like let him help and 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 try to guide Connor Wong through the big league season and take some of the load off these young players. Like they just they if you just let the young players fail and try to figure it out on their own, you're 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 pushing the development back and and prolonging the development. Whereas some of these veteran players could come in, provide some insight, take the pressure off. And help these young players develop. It doesn't have to be, well, it's the young players. It's their time to shine. They'll get the time. We'll give them 500 at-bats and see what they do. It, it, like Tristan Casas was left to, to dry last year because there was absolutely nobody to play first base. And they had Turner, but like it was Casas, and he's going to figure it out, and he's going to fail while he does it, but we're going to stick with him. But if you would have brought a veteran presence in, just to take the load off so he doesn't have to go out there and struggle and struggle and struggle. He can learn something from veterans. And I just, if that's the direction they're going to go, it's really going to bug me because you can sign these one or two year deals and just help the young players along the process rather than just throw them to the fire. It's such a small subsect of prospects that are even going to make it in the big leagues to be with right and like a plant you have to foster it you have to nurture it you have to provide it the right conditions for it to grow and to prosper and to be successful so if you're going to take this small group of prospects that are going to make it to be big league players to begin with and then you're going to force them to do it in the bright lights of the major league under the harshest circumstances possible you're limiting yourself to an even smaller amount of people that can be successful right like to borrow an analogy from the nfl how many players that are quarterbacks get drafted in the top five and immediately start the first game of the rookie year and look like just the worst athlete of all time because they've had no time to learn the speed of the game. They've had no time to learn the pro style offense. They've had nobody to learn under. But then you get a guy that sits behind another quarterback for a couple of years, learns the system, learns, you know, the nomenclature, learns, you know, how to be a professional. And, you know, while they might not be this all pro top five of all time, they're a lot more successful, right? It's a similar concept in baseball. Like off the top of my head, I can only think of maybe half a dozen players that they're like, all right, we drafted him top 10. He's flying through the minor league systems. We're going to get him up to the majors. 
and then he has success, right? That is, I mean, you talk about trying to hit it big on a reclamation project. That's like shooting for, I don't even know what star to make the comp, you know, the comparison to if that's what your, if what your game plan is to just put these guys directly into the majors and hope they succeed. It is an improbable lottery ticket that is going to be so difficult because it's already a lottery ticket to get a prospect that you draft in the first round to be, you know, a major league contributor. Mike, it was a great point, right? You can do these one-year, two-year, financially flexible deals. Give them somebody to learn behind. Have them show them the ropes. Like, hey, kid, I've been in the majors, you know, 12 years or whatever it ends up being. Let me, you know, impart some of this knowledge that I've gained on you. I know I'm not going to be the guy of the future. I know I'm not going to be around here for a long time, but I'm here now, and what I can do to help is X, Y, Z, right? Martinez was doing it a long time. Turner was doing it, so we heard, right? Like, what we got from Duran from last year to this year, I think is the anomaly and not the rule, right? We had no depth in the outfield last year. He was tearing it up the minors. We're like, cool, we'll bring him up. We'll see what happens. He had a hot start and then he fizzled out and he made the adjustments. He went back, he licked his wounds. He had a great, you know, off season, had a great beginning of the year in AAA. And then we called him up and he was, he was a rock star. He, you know, buoyed our team for a month and a half before he, he had his injury. And, I can't think of many incident um, occasions where that's even happened, right? Normally the prospect comes up, even if they go up the right way, they bring him along slowly. If they sizzle out, sometimes that's that's the end of it. And so to, to put all your eggs in the basket of, we're going to make these prospects the cornerstone of our franchise. We're just going to let them kind of burn in the sun. And if they, you know, sink or swim, uh, that that makes me very uncomfortable. And, you know, I'm pretty optimistic of all of our top three prospects, like the current class of untouchables, apparently. But what if they have the year Anthony Volpe had in their first year? How, wh- what good is that going to do for the overall club in the grand scheme of things? Not great, especially if they're all coming up at the same time, you know? And look at Xander Bogarts, 2014. That was his first full season, 144 games, which uh, is 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 a very full time season, uh, you know. These days, he hit 240 with a 297 on base. You know that was that was he wasn't. It took him a long time. His development continued well into his major league tenure, and he didn't light it up. The next season, he hit 320 with a 355 on base but only seven home runs in all of those games, 156 games, only seven home runs. So you, you could, and and he was a power hitter. That's what he was projected as. So the development still continued. And then let's see, finally uh, 20, where are we? 2016, 21 home runs. He hit 294 with a 356 on base. So he finally arrived you know, in his third full year. So I, well, I was just going to say I, I'm uncomfortable assuming that these guys are going to be studs right away. Well, Bogarts came up at what, 20 or 21? Uh, tw- well, technically 20, uh, if you want to count the cup of coffee in 2013. But he was nowhere near a finished product, you know, and how old is Roman Anthony? He's 19. How old is Marcelo Meyer? He's 20. How old is Kyle Teal? He's 20. They're not going to be anywhere near finished products 
when those three debut. And we're going to most likely, they could break the norm, but most likely they will have a similar impact to Bogarts in 2014 when they first break into the big leagues. And if, like you said, Terry, if you're if you're trying to break all three of them in at the same time, you essentially are going to have a bottom third of your lineup that are sub 300 OBP guys and are close to automatic outs. Like, and that just they have to learn big league pitching. It's so different than the minors, and I just it doesn't have to be that way. And if they're not competing in 2024 they're probably not competing in 2025 with a third of your lineup potentially being 240 hitters and who knows about 20 or 2026 it could be the same thing who knows like Meyer has had zero success above high a ball he hit like 140 in double a now i know he was injured but he hasn't had a sniff of success in double a teal has never played above triple a and above double A, neither has Anthony. These guys are not really close to producing in the big leagues. And I just to put all of your eggs in that basket, you're essentially saying probably 2026, 2027, maybe 2028. Like that, that's what I take from this. And it doesn't have to be that way. You can still say those three guys we're building around them. Great. But supplement the roster right now with those two and three year deals until you get to that point. If they were in triple a and they were close, I'd say, you know what? Yeah, probably do it. But unfortunately the organization just isn't there yet and that's okay. You don't have to be there yet, but it's like they're forcing it. That's where we got to be. No, it doesn't. You can spend your $35-40 million that you actually have before you have to start paying other teams for going over the luxury tax, and you can put a competitive team while you wait. It's possible. But they, they're so set on these three guys, and I, I'm with you guys. I, I'm high on bo- on all three of them. I think they could be good. Chances are probably one of them is going to be really good based on how prospects turn out. You know, Maybe we get lucky. But to put all of your eggs in that basket, that's putting fans through, putting them through the ringer until we get a finished product. For some reason, I thought Anthony was a college draftee, but he's only 19. Uh, So perhaps I botched that. Fun fact, if you want to feel old, he was born... Seven weeks before the iconic A-Rod Veritek dust-up in 2004. Born seven weeks before that. Here, here he is. Uh, it's just troubling information. <laughs> he really wasn't drafted out of college? He didn't play one year in college? Nah, he was a high schooler uh, in the second round, I believe. How did he get to double A so fast? Usually college players do that. Andrew Benintendi came up uh, a year and a half uh, after being drafted, or not even a year and a half. It was like 13 months after being drafted. That's why some um, like scouting, uh, whatever, scouting 
programs or whatever they have him like top 10. He's he's been that good in the minors especially last year. He just tore it up. So I mean the hype is real around him. Probably more than Meyer right now I would say because the the shoulder injury he says he's back. I hope so, but it, it, we really got to see what kind of hitter he is in Double A. Um whereas my um where Anthony really kind of showed he's already kind of started to hit double a pitching yeah and teal was out of college i think but all right we'll we can go on and on as as you know i mean we're we're extremely random and pulling stuff out of our rear end at this thing just to just to talk baseball but um hopefully we'll be back I, who knows i mean this is going at a snail's pace now there is no momentum behind snail or montgomery right now <laughs> And truck day is like two weeks away. So um, so we'll see. Maybe maybe a surprise move happens. Maybe they'll trade someone uh, off the big league roster anyway. But uh, we'll be back to cover whatever does. So everyone have a great start to your week. Take care. <laughs>